Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to learn about and hear about in this episode? I interview one of the most active and thoughtful people from the data mesh community, Matthew Darwin of Slalom Consulting. We talked a lot about a lot of different things, but one of the main things we, we covered was his article where he was asking if we can reuse an existing platform, uh, data platform, and simply shift data ownership left to the domains. I think we both agree the answer is both yes and no, depending on what part of that question you're asking. You can definitely reuse the technologies you already know and love. There is literally no good reason to toss those out the window. Again, you already know them. You already like them. You've probably already paid for some of them. No good reason to not reuse those when you think about building your data mesh data platform. If your existing setup as the do- the platform exists actually already enables domains to easily transform, serve, and store their their data, absolutely you could use it with its current setup. If not, you just need to understand that there will need to be changes so that you can do that. If you're asking if you need to fully build out all the capabilities of your data platform before starting on a data mesh journey, that's a hard, hard, hard no. So If you understand and you have internal communication understanding that you'll need to evolve your data platform, evolve the capabilities of that, it's fine to start with a bit of an underwhelming data platform. Again, as long as people understand that it's going to get better and that you're you're having that communication. Matt shared some interesting insights from direct client engagements doing data mesh, including one that was just using data mesh as a buzzword and wasn't really looking to, to really implement it. Um, in good faith. <laughs> and we also talked about a number of, of other things, such as what makes for a good data mesh POC, the usefulness of data product blueprints, how data mesh is still bleeding edge, and why it, therefore it's not for everyone. And that's totally okay. It's okay if it's not for you now or even ever. How to slow down to move faster so that you're not building fragile things just to get them out, to have them break, how you build your data products, your data platform, your data culture in a resilient and reliable way so that you're not just constantly reacting, that you're being proactive. A couple other topics that we covered, why you can't just expose your operational data model as a data product, the importance of data product interoperability, even at the POC phase, Matt goes into a little bit of um, one client's journey and how they were thinking specifically only about the data product for the POC, not about how it would be interoperable in the future and how that led to um, them having you know a bit of a stop start with their, their data mesh implementation. Covered how crucial the organizational aspects of data mesh really are to getting the big value out of data mesh. If you're only looking at it from an architectural technical approach, 
it's just not going to have that, that same value to you. The long-term negatives of always looking for quick wins, so kind of circling back a little bit on that slowing down to move faster, and much more. As I said, covered a lot of different things, and it was, but it was a really, really great chat. So I think you're going to really enjoy it and learn a lot from it. So strap in for some more great nuggets of wisdom as I interview another awesome community member. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Really excited about this episode today. We've got Matthew Darwin from Slalom here to talk about a couple of different things. One is an article that I, I had mentioned in the Mesh Musings uh, asking kind of what I call the provocative question of uh, can looking towards data mesh, can we just keep the existing architecture and shift the ownership, the responsibility of owning the, the data left to the domains. And I'll, I'll ask uh, Matthew to, to give a little bit better summation of it so that I'm not pigeonholing it in any way. Um, but uh, And then we'll also talk about what Matthew's been seeing with his clients around data mesh as to what they're excited about, maybe what, where they've got questions or, or challenges and, and things like that as well. So with that, uh, Matthew, thank you so much for, for taking the time. If you could give kind of a brief introduction to yourself and a little bit about your history around data mesh and what you've been doing there. Yeah, no, thanks, Scott, and uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, uh, Matthew or Matt Darwin either. I literally don't care. Um, <laughs> from uh, from Manchester in the UK. Um, so I work with Slalom, who are a, um, a kind of global consultancy doing primarily digital transformation and that kind of thing. Um, and I kind of work in the data engineering space uh, with those guys. Uh, my background was, you know, I was a SQL Server DBA for years and years and years. And then I kind of moved into the, the whole data platform space um, and very much with a kind of cloud focus in, in recent times. And um, data mesh has been really interesting. Um, I've certainly spent the sort of last just over a year and a bit really spending serious time looking into that. So we're probably talking October uh sort of october 2020 uh no no i've got that wrong october yeah october 2020 started to really pay attention to uh uh to the articles read the martin fowler articles thought about it thought oh that's interesting forgot about it for a little bit because no one was really talking about it in, in public and then um and then we had a client um come to us and say hey we we want to implement a data mesh so it's like okay Let's go back through all of that. And there was very much um, there was a a, a pre sales document that I saw on that client internally that said, "Oh, Data Mesh is this client's name for Data Lake." And I went, "Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> this isn't right." Um, and and that's kind of where I really started to to um, to take over uh, in that space. So yeah, over the last year, I've kind of been helping several clients um, look into data mesh from from the original the original client who um, who wanted to implement a data mesh, and it's a an interesting solution because they are a data reseller. Um, so they were purchasing data from various uh, various sources doing stuff with it and then reselling that back out through APIs and all kinds of good stuff. Um, so it's kind of not that typical world of data analytics, data products, and they already had data products. So there's all right, right from the bat, there's nomenclature problems there uh, <laughs> and kind of things to, to readdress. Um, so we had those guys and then almost every conversation that I had with a client was, oh, can we do a data mesh discovery? Can you tell us more about data mesh? And it might just be like, you know, a, a one hour call, or um, it might be like a two or three week discovery phase. Um, and there's some common themes, uh, which we can we can get into uh, in a minute on that. 
Um, so yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of what I've been doing over the last year. Awesome, thanks for that. And and yeah, a, a lot of what you're talking about. So was that that first client? Were they right, or was the pre-sales document right? Was it oh, that no, they the, were actually looking at data mesh, and the pre-sales document was wrong? Or? Oh yeah, the pre-sales document was terrible. It was awful, <laughs> frankly. Um, yeah, the the client the, that client was really interesting, and um, there's a lot of things in the data mesh principles that really work for them as data as a product, and they were doing some some really terrible things, really. So they'd grown by acquisition. Um, they were doing things like actually purchasing the same data sets multiple, multiple times over, processing them independently to have their, um, you know, their, the, the, the products that they put out. And there was two, you know, there's two products that actually were doing the same thing. Um, but one was doing it, um, a single request at a time and the other one was doing it batch and they actually gave different results. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we were kind of sat there going like, oh, well, that's a, that's a problem. And, and some of their clients had called them out on it and said like, you know, when we, when we, when we, when we chuck this data through one at a time, we get X, Y, and Z back. But, but when we chuck a back through, we get ABC back. Like what's, what's down <laughs> with that? <laughs> what's going on here? I and mean, it's not like, you know, like, not like wildly different or anything, but you know, there was enough that it's, this is actually questionable and we're now questioning your data sources. Um, so the, the, the kind of source data product and then subsequent aggregate data product structure really made an awful lot of sense for their for them as a business. And if you think about it, okay, they they're purchasing data in from from other vendors. I'm doing some transformation on it. It's not really any different from you know if that that data was generated in house and it's an analytics you know an internal analytics yeah. department. So. So we're saying, okay, let's let's get back to basics here. Let's divvy up all of the data sources you've got. Let's make sure you only buy it once and reuse it internally amongst other things. Um, but then have your have that then produced as a data product to be used internally to build the products and services that you're that you're then um, delivering to your customers. And there might be several levels of nesting in there um, and and so on. So. Yeah, it was it was a really good fit for those guys. Um, and uh, before the before this convers before we started recording, we were chatting about the it depends kind of part of a data product, and we certainly went in with a well, what is a data product and what should it look like? And it was very much you know in this case it was an it depends, and they're like no no no, we want to know how to build this. So it's like okay, at the end of a kind of eight week discovery, you know, we gave them a blueprint to how to do some of this stuff actually with technologies written on there. So it stopped being an it depends and it became, okay, all of your source, you know, all of these source data inputs that you're doing actually have them as, in this case, it was Databricks Delta Lake tables because uh, it fit with the analyst team that they have and how they queried that data and how they were going to combine those sets together and their kind of data science team that were going to look for interesting ways to combine them. But then as, as you kind of expanded on that, they'd have other endpoints. So, you know, there's one that was definitely a graph database, it was like absolutely a graph database. Um, so that's being, you know, pushed out as a Neo4j. There was stuff that was getting cached. There's stuff that's getting um, put out in relational databases and so on. So they really embraced the idea of the, you know, the polyglot data, the multiple endpoints for a data product and so on. Um, so, yeah, and they're, they're still very much on that journey. They're still, they're still getting there. Um, uh, but yeah, that was that was cool and interesting. Yeah, I, I really liked the what you mentioned, especially about the blueprint. Is blueprints are there for if you don't have other needs, right? Like they, they, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. But when you need something that's not a wheel, then that's when you start to look to reinvent, right? Absolutely. And so, like I, I feel like within a lot of the way people interpret a lot of the, the data mesh stuff, I don't think Jamac has ever even intimated towards this, but that there's everything has to be bespoke. Every single aspect of everything you do with data mesh has to be bespoke. Every single data product is bespoke with its own um, endpoints. You know, output ports is is kind of the um, parlance that that data mesh uses. But no, if if this if you've got 
10 things that all look like a gingerbread cookie, use the, the cookie cutter for the gingerbread cookie. Now, if something you're building a gingerbread house, yeah, you've got to start to think a little differently. But yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. That's that, that, it's something that I think we need to be talking about more in the community as well. It's just like, how do we prevent toil? Right. Like, yeah, how, yeah, how do we how do we make this so that this is I mean, that was my concept really for the community was if everybody's trying to do all this stuff in the dark and not sharing with each other what they're doing, it's it's just it's going to be five years before anybody really knows what what to do here versus a year and a half because everybody's kind of sharing. So Yeah. And, and I think that's it's an interesting point because I do the other thing that's apparent with some of those conversations that I've had with people, you know, whether they're like the hour long conversations one of the big parts that comes out of those conversations is always, well, I can't see a single reference architecture that I can say this is exactly what data mesh looks like. And and it's probably because there isn't ever I don't think there's ever going to be one. You know, it's not going to be like this is exactly what a data mesh looks like, you know, compared to say um, other architectures out there. So if you you know if you if you um, said to somebody, oh, what does uh, an event-based architecture look like. You've got a good idea right from the bat of the different things that you're going to have in there with some some tweaks here and there. But with data mesh, I think it can be really, really, really different. You know, you can have all kinds of different stuff going on that look very different. And we, you know, I'll, I'll present that out to clients and say, well, if you look at, say, the um, AWS reference architecture that's based on JP Morgan Chase, I believe, it looks like almost from a certain point of view, it looks like a bunch of data lakes with glue catalogs on the top and so on and so forth. If you look at um, Saxo Bank, that's got you know event uh, event streams in there and, and a snowflake materialization in there. It looks quite different. And if you kind of took those two as drawn up on pieces of paper and gave them to somebody and said, these are the same thing, they might question you and say, are they the same thing? And it's because it's all the other stuff that comes with it that really starts to say, this is what data mesh really is. It's like, it's very much that way of thinking about how you're delivering data that I think, that I think matters. So I think there's, you know, there's been some confusion with people around, around that kind of stuff, but, but certainly to your point around the five years, there are a lot of people that I think are just sitting and waiting to which see what some of those people have done, which is fine, right? You know, it's fine. Not everybody has to be bleeding edge. Not everybody has to be um, trailblazing this stuff. I'm back with our original client that we had. I said, there was one, you know, there was one meeting that I had with the, the CIO there. And I did say to him, look, you know, you've asked us to, to show you other clients that we have that are doing this stuff. And I, I can't show you a data mesh implementation. You know, this is early 2020, uh, early, yeah, early 2021, sorry. Um, I can't show you this because there's not that much of it there. And it, whatever's there, it's not complete by any stretch. You know, it's not like there's somebody sat there with their entire data platform as a finished data mesh. That's just, exactly. you know, it's not going to be there for, for some time. And all of a sudden you kind of saw, saw it click in his, in his mind. He's like, oh, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, this is trailblazing. It's like actually trailblazing makes me nervous. <laughs> so, so it's like, no, this is still the right thing for you to do, but you've got to be cautious about it and think there's a, you know, there's a long way to go. There's going to be some bumps. There's going to be some stuff that's specific for you that doesn't necessarily work. You're going to have to solve some of those problems. You can't go on Stack Overflow and say, how do I fix this problem from here and expect right. like 200 answers? It's like, you're going to have to put that answer out when somebody else answers the question, ask the question like, you know, a couple of years or whatever. So, so yeah. So I think there's there's definitely uh, there's definitely um, an element of that. A lot of people sitting and waiting, trying to see what comes out of it, um, looking at the the different implementations, and and I'm probably picking and pulling parts of it out and maybe applying them. And hopefully, that's a good segue to start talking about yeah. uh, about the article. Literally, I was going to say, you know, speaking of uh, not having to. Uh, take everything on at once and, you know, being that kind of trailblazer. Uh, so uh, you'd put out a, a really, I, I love the article, you know, I um, I both strongly agree and strongly disagree with it, um, depending on like little nuances or, or things like that. So uh, why don't you give uh, a little bit of an intro to what your kind of supposition is or, or what you asked in the article? Yeah. So the, the, the premise of the article was um, from the original 
um, material put out on Martin Fowler. And I'm going to say original material, the, the material that I first saw on Martin Fowler, slight, slightly different. Um, and where Jamak talks about the first generation, second generation, and third generation data platforms. Uh, so kind of first generation being enterprise data warehouses, second generation being the kind of the data lake revolution with on-prem Hadoop clusters and all that kind of stuff. And then the third generation is being really a, a kind of uh, evolution of that second gen, moving into the cloud, embracing event eventing and that kind of stuff. Um, gen one, gen two, totally agree. You know, they they should be dead. People should be getting away from that stuff. <laughs> you know, like there's there's no place for on-premise Hadoop clusters anymore, in my opinion. Um, however, the third one, I sort of had a little bit of an issue with that because when we start to think about um, distributed, and I'm going to say distributed infrastructure here because I think we'll we'll address distributed architecture in a moment. And this is how I read it. I, I kind of read it. It's like, oh, but if I've got a cloud-based da data lake, then it's not going to be, or at least if I'm doing it, it's not going to be one account with one bucket in or one Azure subscription with one data lake storage bucket or whatever it happens to be. It's going to be a number of accounts, a number of different buckets with fulfilling different purposes so it already has this kind of distributed nature to it you know and thinking thinking of certainly from a technical point of view and bottlenecks from a technical point of view you know i don't have to worry about any of those technical issues of expanding my hadoop cluster you know if i want to create a new bucket or, or i spin up some you know run my terraform module there's my new there's my new bucket and so on and and it's all kind of it's all kind of done so so the the, the thinking behind the article was actually is some of this stuff already done from a technical perspective by people that may have these cloud platforms that I'm seeing uh, with people and how we recommend, you know, how we've been recommending people put their data platforms in place for some time. And, but as I say in the article, there is, however, a problem where these structures have been created and then handed over to one team to manage the entire thing. And they need to understand everything and they need to do all of the pipelines and they just spend their, their lives like in business as usual, keeping the lights on mode. And they have like this itty bit of bandwidth for any new stuff. And that becomes like a huge bottleneck for, for going on. And not uh, uh, and following on from that, you know, the, the idea that the, they're expected to understand the entire business's domain knowledge for every single part of it in order to do that transformational work and deliver that to their customers who are the, the data analysts. It's like I totally see that as a problem. But is it the is it the architecture of a, a cloud-based data lake that's the problem? Or is it that we just haven't adapted those team structures to it? Um, yeah, and that, that lack of business context around you know, when a request comes in, the default is no, or let me dig into it because they're not the ones who know, you know, oh, can I get access to this, um, this table? No. Uh, okay. Like, how do I get access to it? You've got to go to the, the source team. Well, the source team doesn't even know what all has been done from the transformation standpoint. You know, oh, okay. You've got the, um, your data engineering team or, you know, whatever you want to call that's managing this, this infrastructure from a, a centralized standpoint that they don't know when something has changed upstream or they don't know that something looks a little off because they just don't have. <laughs> the yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've run data teams in the past and I've experienced that exact same thing. It's like, Oh, you know, the, the product team changed something. Um, now all my reports are just wrong. But but I don't really know why because you know the nothing's nothing's broken in my pipeline. It still works. It's still running. But the numbers are just clearly wrong, right? What's happened here? Oh, you know somebody's somebody's implemented something so that a status change just happens before or after some other status change, and it just completely destroys your entire you know the entire meaning of that data or something. And and that's like a real world scenario. I've I've seen that that kind of stuff happen. Um, so yeah, the, the, the idea that, that, that team can, one team can have that, all of that knowledge is just, it's absurd. There's no way they can do it. Um, and so that's the, that was the idea of, well, can you, can you then shift left? Um, can you push the pipelines into the domain teams? And that might be, um, you know, it might be reorganizing 
people. It might be repurposing those data engineers into that into those teams. And I've tried that in the past before with with teams and aligned my you know my they were BI developers at the time doing kind of like SSIS stuff. Align those with product teams so that they get more of that knowledge and more of that ownership of this is my stuff. Uh, the problem that I had at that point in time was then workload. I had you know I had two BI developers. There's ten product teams. I'll give them five each, right? Ah, but the one that I gave, you know, I gave gave one five, the other one five, one sat scratching the bum waiting for stuff to do because there's nothing happening. The other one's swamped. So it's like, oh, this doesn't work. Um, so, you know, there's, de- there's definitely some element of balance there of how that works. Um, uh, but I think it's it's the idea then is you get that knowledge and ownership in place closer to the source and it becomes, you know, they go to the standard, the same standups. They know when changes are coming. They can say, hey, have you thought what happens when you make that change to the data all the way over here? Um, and I really like that part of, um, of data mesh. That's the most compelling part for me. Um, so, so yeah, so the idea then was, okay, so we do that. And the issue is, is there, a, is there an element that you get stuck in that kind of Spotify model at this point? Do I need to go out and hire 20 new data engineers or you know if i've if i've got 10 domain teams and i need to have three in each do i need to have 30 data engineers overnight because where do i find those it's not like you can go and you know hire 30 data engineers overnight it's difficult enough getting one at the moment <laughs> so um so that's that, within budget right yeah like, exactly everyone's like still trying to pay you know 2019 prices for yeah yeah yeah, exactly. talent. Like, no, that's just, it doesn't work. I'm yeah. It's, it's, that's moved on from there. This is, this is premium stuff now. Right. Um, so that's not going to happen. And, and so that was, that was the idea then of, you know, I think the, the approach that Shamak has around the platform team is really important that that platform team makes a lot of sense. And I think you can have those parallels with the DevOps team and the DevOps revolution. I mean, I hate, I hate the phrase DevOps team because it just, it's, it's wrong, but well, that's another conversation. I can talk for hours on that. Um, but we'll use the phrase because that's what everybody knows them as. Um, the DevOps team building tooling for product teams to do release process, to do CI/CD, to do infrastructure provisioning, and all of that as tooling. You know, all of the monitoring good stuff that they do, but they don't manage that infrastructure anymore. They go, "Here's tools, you manage it." Right. So absolutely, to do this, that tooling part is just as important from the data platform team side of things so they've got to be you've got to ha- you've got to have your experienced able data engineers providing those tools those frameworks and so on so if we talk about like spark for instance um you could have somebody that writes a bunch of jars or python wheels with a load of functions in there that will give you a pipeline when you glue them together with your config. And when you know, you're back onto metadata-driven pipelines at this point, right? So you can declare like a slowly changing dimension as a function. I mean, pass whatever it into it, pass the, the, the grouping key that you're going to do it by, do your min-max functions to work out that by, by those. And hey, hey, presto, here's a slowly changing dimension. And it doesn't matter what my data is to do that. I can create that as a function. I can unit test that. I can have all of that good stuff in place. I can have it deployable so that all you need to do is import my super cool uh, Spark framework, run my function, done. That's it. Um, and I think that, 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 was, that was the thinking around where I was saying, okay, if you, if you repurpose the teams that way, actually all you need somebody in your domain team is that knows like this much of data pipelining stuff and go oh actually i'm going to do x y and z here's some templates that i can that i can reuse to create my actual data products templating or you know my 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 end results my my tables in my my data lake or whatever it happens to be um but it's it's coming from this unit tested strong framework that you put in place and the same with like the infrastructure for buckets and the same with um you know your testing frameworks you can have a lot of that templated in the same way as that DevOps team does it for 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 feature engineering, uh, for product yeah. engineering, and that and that was a lot of what you covered was a lot of where my pushback was was there was can we just use the existing platform mm. and to that I say almost assuredly no, <laughs> but if if you because the way most people are building their platform is to speed up the data engineering team. 
not to speed up what the domains would need. You know, you, you talked about providing that that capability to manage the infrastructure. We don't want the domains to have to really manage the actual underlying Kafka or Pulsar or Spark or whatever, but that they're able to manage it as code and yep. that we provide them those capabilities. And that if if we're just pushing the responsibility left, but not giving them additional resourcing, whether that is you talked about people or, you know, from the platform side, then, then I think it's, it's a big problem. But a big misconception that I, I see a lot, and you and I have talked about this in the past. Um, we even talked about this a little bit before uh, we, we started recording, but I see this a lot of people say, can I reuse what I've got? And it's, and it's, Yes, you can reuse the tools you know and love and have paid for. <laughs> you know, the the whole people trying to think that there's a sunk cost to those. And it's like, no, you got to throw it out. Absolutely incorrect. I, I absolutely hate that approach of you have to start from scratch. You know this, these tools. Your team knows these tools. So you don't have to go and completely learn new things. But the way you set them up, the way you leverage them, the additional tooling that you build on top to do CICD for data, to do testing. You know, I think you, you posted on LinkedIn uh, a poll last week about um, testing with data. And yep. um, I, I think I was, I was upset that there's, uh, there was no <laughs> YOLO, no testing at all or whatever. So my, um, uh, my, my colleague, uh, my colleague Yanis actually posted on um, Reddit about that. And uh, you get a lot more response on Reddit to that stuff, but it's, it's usually a little bit more, um, uh, uh, shall we say, dangerous and not safe for work. But there was a, the top, the top voted post was something like, "Nah, I prefer every day to be a surprise." <laughs> you know, it's just like that's brilliant. Um, but I, it's quite interesting. So that poll, I think, is really interesting from a number of reasons. Not because it, it's not really about unit testing. It's actually about how do you build your pipelines, because. Um, you know, there's there's an awful lot of people that build their data pipelines where they go, hey, you know, oh, I'm using AWS Glue and AWS Glue. Well, it looks like I open, you know, I open it up on SageMaker or whatever, and I get a notebook. So I write one big notebook that is my data pipeline, right? And then I run it, and it works, and it's cool. And I have to build another data data pipeline, so I I, I create another notebook and start from scratch and write the whole thing again. And then I sit down and go, like, how do I unit test this this notebook? I was like, oh. That's hard. I'm not going to bother doing that. I'll, I'll, I'll just do like black box testing or whatever. You know, put something here in front, and then something comes out at the end, and it's good. But it doesn't give me any indication as to when it fails, which bit of it failed, or if I change something that it fundamentally breaks this other stuff. Um, whereas I think the guys that were, you know, the people that that do more framework type, um, type. Uh, data pipelining and it's much more smaller functional components. They're like, oh yeah, I do, I do my functional testing, and I do that kind of you know real data pipeline testing. And then of course you get the kind of the people that that get confused and think you're talking about the kind of real data pipeline testing as you're running your real data pipelines in reality. And you know how, what, what's my records in? What's my records out? Is it inspected? You know, is, is something weird going on with this particular data set that I'm running at this time? And you should do that testing as well, right? So you should be doing all of this testing. And the more testing that you do, the more confidence and comfort that you have that everything's gonna work. Um, but yeah, I did, I did think that was quite, it was quite an interesting poll. Um, and the, uh, on, on Reddit, um, the, the yes, no, uh, divide was a lot closer you know i think it's like i think he had like you know like 1500 votes on it or something and there's probably only like 60 or 70 difference between yes and no or like wow. oh i think there's a third option which is like what's unit testing <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know and it's really even and that was quite interesting to see um and, and again it all comes down to it depends you know if you're doing one a one-off data pipeline that's quick and dirty then yeah maybe you'll cut some corners right but there's going to be a point where you, you, you do the next one and the next one. So, yeah. yeah. A lot of what you're talking about is something I'm seeing a lot with um, data in general, where um, everything is one-off. Everything yep. is one-off. And so um, we talk about 
in every business process. How much can we automate? How much can we automate? And yet nobody's really talking that much about data automation. And mm. so, um, and there was another uh, post on LinkedIn a while back about from Monzo talking about their lineage and they have 4,500, what I would call data artifacts yeah. where it's, it's um, you know, it's a table and that table may have, you know, five upstream changes and then there may be 10 downstream dependencies on that table. And every single one of those becomes a first class concern. And yeah. so who owns it? How do they own it? Do they have that context in their head versus data mesh? You encapsulate that into a, you know, not 4,500, but you, you encapsulate 40 or 50 or 100 of those into a single product. And mm. so you're, you're like, your problem surface area considerably shrinks because you've got something that where all of those transformations are, are happening within the same data product itself. And so yep. you don't have somebody could decide to become a consumer off of this uh, one piece and you don't know about it. The platform needs to inform you that somebody is now a consumer. They're a registered consumer. You've got schema contracts. You know, I, I talked in the last episode yeah, yeah. with Olivier about schema contracts and uh, what he's seeing where, where um, when you're, you've got the domains not really bought in, that every single schema contract is broken every single day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think it was yeah. quite that bad, but it, it was like, so how, how often are we seeing breaking changes? And it was all the time. So yeah, yeah exactly what you're talking about of breaking these things and, and moving you're slowing down to move faster. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's going to take, you know, your first data product is going to take you 20 times longer than your, your 10th, which will take 20 times longer than your 100th. You know, it, it becomes a well-oiled machine for, for all sorts of reasons. So, I mean, even if you're thinking of that kind of network of source data products across the bottom that become aggregate data products, well, oh, hang on a minute. I can, I can use this guy here from what I want to do now with this guy over here to do my new thing, right? So it's, it's building blocks. You're creating these building blocks instead of starting from scratch every single time. Um, and that's that's been an interesting one. So, uh, you know, we had we had another client that, that I worked with in the sort of spring and they were clearly using data mesh as a buzzword to get the funding internally to replace their broken data platform with another shiny data platform tool. And it really had nothing to do with data mesh, right? What they were trying to do. Um, and, you know, they couldn't get away from, they couldn't get their heads around self-describing data products. So, you know, they were, they were hooking into like some SAP systems and some of the ERP system. And, you know, the, the data products, they were just they were just basically taking the schema of SAP and putting it in as, as a, a data product. And it, we're going to make that available for people to use in a SQL query. And it's like, well, well who knows what column C underscore 0953 means if you don't know, right? <laughs> or whatever it happens to be. And some, of, some of that horrible stuff that you get out of that. Um, and they were really just using it as a, a I think, as a buzzword to to go forward with what they were doing and, you know, kind of talking to them There's people bought into it and people not bought into it and all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. Um, so that was, that was interesting as well, that it's, it's, you know, uh, even I think when people are, are using the, the phrase, they don't necessarily really mean it. Um, but the, the really interesting point from that particular client was the move to data mesh was it led, not business led. Hmm. And it's like, okay, actually, that's the wrong way around, right? This should be a business-led thing because it's solving business problems at the end of the day. Um, the, the, you know, the IT side of things is just, you know, shiny toys usually <laughs> rather than uh, rather than anything else. So Nick Schrock at, at Elemental, I don't know, he has um, created uh, GraphQL or some kind of thing with the the genesis of GraphQL. I don't know the exact story, but also Dagster, and that's mm. what Elemental's doing. But he was on a, a podcast recently. I think it was the Catalog and Cocktails podcast. And he was talking about data mesh and and how frustrated some people get when learning about it because they, they do want to go to the tools because they want to jump to, how do I do this? How do I do, you know, I, I had a conversation with somebody where I told them up front, 
oh, every single data mesh conversation devolves into, okay, but show me what tools I want to use and how do I do it? And it's just, it's constant because a lot of this is, you know, when I think about data mesh, it is 10 or 12 high level paradigms in under one, you know, much bigger, greater, you know, it's, it's, CICD, but for data, it's domain-driven yep. design, but for data, it's, you know, it's okay, we have, it's all these cultural changes. It's how do we provide abstractions to the domain so that they can focus on sharing their business context, but then how do we also do that interoperability where, you know, are we just doing simple standards and those simple standards are, are supposed to drive this interoperability? Does somebody who's actually querying the data mesh, you know, somebody that's a consumer, how do they actually interoperate between mm. those products? Is it just you say, okay, this meets this standard and this meets this standard, so that's your linking key? It's like, no, that that's that's a the, almost uh, dropped an s bomb there. Uh, that's that's <laughs> a very very bad um, user experience, right? Yep, that's that's completely. not something that you you want to do. So. Um, but at the same point, it's a journey. And so you're going to have kind of bad experiences up front around a lot of this stuff oh, and it's going to be stubbing your toe a lot. And the, you know, like yeah, you said, the, exactly. There's, data product. It's, there's going to be stuff that you do that just doesn't work, you know, and I've seen that happen. You know, I've seen people select tools and go, Oh, we're going to do it on this because of X, Y, and Z. And, and right from the get go, I was like, Ooh, I'm, I'm not sure that that's going to work. And have you thought about that? Have you thought about this, how this really going to work? And, um, uh, you know, I had, uh, had some guys that were wanted to do a data mesh POC with one data product. I was like, hang on a minute, you know, for it to be a, a mesh, maybe maybe you need more than one data product in your in your POC. You know, it's like we've got one source data product, we've got a working data mesh here. It's like I, there's some stuff that you want to do in that space, but you probably want to have like maybe two or three to see how they, you know, interoperate with each other because it's a key part of this. And if you can't make that work and think how that's going to work, this is going to fall down. And there was there was definitely some technical choices that they made with the the tool selection, but right from the get go, it's like kind of you know i'm not cons- i'm not i'm not convinced that that particular tool is going to work in this space for these reasons and they're like okay now we're going to go ahead with it and then i found out um you know we we went back in i wasn't with the, that the team that went back in but yeah they they kind of are gonna yeah you were right sorry about that <laughs> we kind of <laughs> threw it away um which is cool right you know it's a learning experience and it, it was good for it was good for those guys to do it but you know they, they were uh it, it was it was kind of not thinking of how this is going to be further down the line and getting really focused on on tech too early than than thinking about how those different domains are going to work together you know you, if you if you're just looking at one single domain one single data product how is that different from a data mart it's it's high well yeah it, it is in that it's discoverable but it's well, yeah. high quality trustable data silos yeah and so yeah, yeah. i've been i've been working on this this thing that I've been calling the SCAE, which is yeah. Scott's confusing ass equation. Um, <laughs> and it's what is the incremental value for a, a new data product? And then what is that incremental value when you are specifically maximizing its context versus maximizing the interoperability? Yep. Because when you start to think about five, 10 data products, okay, my, um, the, the data products themselves are probably more valuable than the interoperability. But when you start to talk about 100 or 500 or whatever, yep. then that, that interoperability really, really, you know, if this data product is able to be interoperable, you've got 500 data products and it's able to be like well-worked interoperability with 100 data products, even if you say, okay, this data product itself is worth 10 value points and each interoperability point is 0.1 points, you know, it, so it's a hundred times more valuable. The data product is than the interoperability you've they're equal. If it's, if it's mm-hmm. able to be at a hundred and 0.1 and, and you're probably not thinking of it at that 
level of of the value. It's it's probably more than it's point two or point three or you know, and so you really start to make it so that you can be prepared to answer almost any question. That's yeah. like at the end of the day, for me, data mesh ends up just being data preparedness, right? Like yeah, you, yeah, completely. You, you don't have to to focus on, you know, okay, what data can we get and what data, um, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask this question. It's it's already there for you. So yeah, completely. And it, it kind of it kind of boils down to like you know early early doors cloud data lake um, advice that I would give to people is like, you know, at that point it was all about ingestion, right? Just make sure whatever you're doing, you're ingesting data into your raw section of your data lake. So it's there so that you can do something with it later when you want to do it, do, do that thing. You know, if you think of, you know, if you think back to the operational systems where we're, co- where we're storing current state only, because that's what we need for that, that, um, that, uh, you know, piece of software to work, and you don't have the rich history to, to go alongside that. If you've not been capturing that that those changes, you know, like your CDC data somewhere, it's gone. You know, so <laughs> you can't replay it. It's like, how did that get there? I don't know because it's gone, right? Yeah. It didn't happen. And I've seen again. You know, I saw this happen in the past with like a a, a contact center a sales team table in a in a, a data warehouse that's made as a you know a. a a type one slowly changing dimension. So it's a type one dimension. This is, oh, it's just current state. So who who was this this guy that's just moved team, all his sales historically over the past however many moves to his new team because we didn't store the history of it. And it's like, oh, have you stored it anywhere? No. Like, okay, well, that, that date is gone. Um, and I think it's that kind of thing, isn't it? So, you know, Except putting more rig around it than just dumping some data into a into a, a, a data bucket into a storage bucket, and that's kind of where like you know the whole data swamp came from because everyone took it too far. They just shoved stuff in into a real zone, forgot about it, forgot to do anything with it, forgot to catalog it, forgot what was even there or how it got there, and it's like oh, got all this data, but it's just junk, right? Yeah. Um, what does so it mean? You, yeah, you're, exactly. You're, <laughs> hieroglyphs and nobody can read it right exactly so so it's it's that kind of thing isn't it whereas with with data mesh you're kind of taking that same approach let's build something that can be reusable that can cover more than a single use case that can be built on in the future um we might have a use case now so i'm going to fill that and make sure that's done but we're not going to just do this in in like that specific way like you would have done with an old school data mine that just gives you like backs up this one report or whatever it happens to be it's being flexible and it's that's so important i think with um with data mesh and it's it's where it's um it's making sure that those data products can be reused but the flip side is like when you get to the source data products they should always be the only place you go for that source data and i've seen people trying to go oh but but what happens we want to cut corner and go direct to source and skip it's like no, you're kind of missing the point there. It's like this is the building block, it's foundational building block. You don't go below that. You build on top of it. You build up. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. That, that um, uh, John Vines when he did uh, a a meetup uh, for the data mesh learning meetup, he was talking about where we we were having a conversation about how do you convince a domain to share more of their data. So you know. It, Data mesh is about sharing your data on the outside, but what's that data on the threshold, right? Of, of versus yeah, yeah. data on the inside. It's how do you move that that threshold back further and further so they're sharing more and more of their data um, that could be useful. And and how do you monitor or how do you measure what's actually being used and why and and all of that. So um, I, I did want to poke at a, a couple of of things because you you have talked with. A whole lot of of clients about data mesh and mm-hmm. and what they're they're looking to do. So, what do you think of as as kind of your initial advice if somebody's thinking about data mesh or if they're um, and then like if we could jump in as well on the pushbacks if you've said hey maybe you should look at data mesh and then what are they saying back to that where where are they Yep. So, um, so I think uh, the the things to think about are 
the organizational aspects. I mean, it's really obvious, I think, for anybody that spent any time looking at data mesh for a long period of time that this is really important. Um, but the number of people that do speak to us and just think of it purely from a technical perspective, they don't think how they're going to reorganize around their domains. They don't probably, you know, quite a lot of the time, they don't really even know what their domains are or their domains are, um, you know, their domains are just synonymous to like existing business units, old school business units. So like finance. So it's like, we have a finance domain, so we're going to create a finance data product. It's like, okay, like maybe, maybe you want to kind of rethink that a little bit and think about what you're trying to do and think about, um, go away and do some like actual domain designing and uh, Paolo's article, uh, Paolo Plata's article on, on doing that using event storming is great for people that, that haven't done this before. So, so yeah, really, really go and think about, about those aspects and think about how the business is going to um, respond to that. So rather than, you know, as, as I was saying with the, the guys that we had, there was just a shiny buzzword to get funding to replace some tech. How is the business really going to respond when you say, we're going to reshape your organization as part of this because you need to do an element of that. If you're, if you've got a really old school organization structure, it's not going to work. You know, if you've got like it and uh, development and like, you know, sales or whatever as your big business units and you're expecting this to work, it's just not going to work. Um, so that's, that's been, that's probably, I think that's probably like number one common theme. Um, and, you know, a lot of that will come from some of the clients that we had. We, we're talking in this, you know, large established uh, multinationals who, um, you know, who are trying to undergo digital transformation projects. Um, uh, and maybe, you know, maybe they're not quite there with, with compared to, say, smaller, more nimble startup companies or whatever. So I think that, that, would be, that would be the main thing, I think, from there. Do, do, do uh, you think that if a company hasn't done hasn't gone down the domain-driven design route, that trying to go data mesh and domain-driven design at the same point, especially if they're also doing digital transformation. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and again, you know, and we talked about, uh, I talked about this in terms of the motivation for the, the article that I put out. Some of it was around that. It's, there's an awful lot of change here, right? And it gets to a point where there's just too much change and you, you just not, it's just not going to work because you're trying to, you know, a lot of these places, they're trying to implement Agile at the same time as well. So it's like, we're going to implement agile domain driven design. Uh, we're going to switch to data mesh. We're going to do a digital transformation. Um, we're going to, um, you know, restructure our business at the same time. And it's like, okay, it might be easier in some respects with that. It might be easier to say, let's start a new business yeah, <laughs> from <laughs> scratch. <laughs> it's like, okay, you're making the entire thing like just make a new one and start again um so i think you know i think definitely i think if if the the domain thinking isn't understood um isn't really understood properly as to why you would do some of those things especially when you get into those um uh, those data points that are going to be like cross traditional um business units so if we think of like say a customer what is a customer well a customer has different guises across all of these different different business units but you need to you need to start thinking about that so maybe customer becomes a domain maybe you know like talked about like it with um you know credit cards or whatever so maybe like cards becomes a domain maybe you know accounts are another domain you've got transactions as a domain and these kind of things that don't fit into those normal pigeonholed structures of, a, of an organization um, I think that's really key to have that mindset and be at least thinking about it, if not already underway in terms of trying to restructure around those those domains. Um, and so, you know, smaller smaller companies that have have built up in that way are going to do better at this uh, than than some of the really large large organisations that have, uh, that that are you know perhaps a bit slower moving. So yeah, I think I think that's. It's, it's really important to have that right because otherwise we're talking about pushing data into the domain anyway. So if you don't have good domains, where are you pushing the data? Where are you pushing that ownership into? Um, like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense. You, you can't just uh, randomly pick somebody in the org chart and they own it. Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, him, he'll do it. Yeah. Um, Bob, Bob's now in charge yeah. of this data. And he's like, what? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, this was uh, part of a, a discussion I had had, um, I think, last week about that um, if you, well, and Juanis Rosiers as well this week talked about if you don't have a clear owner, then you don't have a data product, right? Like, because, and if you don't have a specific purpose, then you yep. don't have a data product, yep. right? So uh, I got made fun of a lot early days in the uh, data mesh community because I used the word intentionality almost every single thing that I said, but it really is about what are you trying to do rather yeah. than, uh, you know, kind of that cargo cult concept of this is what the book said to do. So this is what we do. But yeah, I, I think if you don't know your domains, then you don't have that logical owner. And if you don't have that logical owner, you don't have somebody who people can go to if they have questions or you don't have somebody who's thinking about the evolution. And then you have these data artifacts and these artifacts, you know, wither very, very quickly. They, they become incorrect with upstream changes and all of that, that stuff. It's just, if you don't have somebody that's got an eye on the full up and downstream process of where this data has come from and, and why it's changed or why we're doing this, it, it just, makes for a pretty bad um, setup for everybody. But, um, and then the one other question, if you've got, if you've got time, I want to be very cognizant. Yeah, yeah you've got, I've got, got a few more minutes. So yeah, that's good. Uh, of the, what what are the pushbacks that you see? And, and what do you think are, are legitimate ones? And what do you think aren't? <laughs> so, I mean, I think um, I, with the way, way that we've approached engagements, they've typically been people asking about data mesh. So we've never, you know, I've not been going in and saying, oh, actually, you know, you should do a data mesh or anything like that. Um, so it's typically people already interested coming back and saying, hey, um, you know, we, we want to do, we want to do a data mesh. So, so if anything, a lot of the, a lot of the response from me has been, are you ready to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? This is a lot of work, you know? Uh, you, you've got a. This is a long-term project and plan. So, so I think that that's kind of the typical um, sort of engagement that we've had. But thinking about uh, the pushbacks, um, yeah, I'm thinking back to the the, the client who are um, really looking to just replatform, and you know they were like their pushback was, but why would we give people freedom to choose whatever tech and whatever um, things within their domain, uh, what, what they want to use within their domain? Why would we give them that freedom rather than dictate to them and say, this is how you do it? Because um, that's kind of how they, you know, the, how they did things. They're like, um, there was a, a common, a, a, another question for, well, from a time perspective of development time of a data product, we already have, you know, they're saying we already have issues where, um, we have our data team who build our, um, our data warehouse for people, but they're not doing it quick enough. So the people that want to consume it cut corners and go to source anyway. So by making a data product that's that's going to encapsulate this whole thing, well, why aren't they just? Why aren't people just going to? Isn't this like just making people able to to skip to source? Um, and I think that that kind of pushback is more around it's not really understanding the building block aspect of of a data product it's not really understanding the as you described it earlier you move slower to move faster so the initial there's an initial slowness but actually you accelerate over time um, i think it's not really grasping those kind of um those kind of concepts so it's it was almost like we just want quick wins we want quick wins we want quick wins all the time I said, well, if you want quick wins, doing a data mesh is not going to bring you quick wins. It's going to, you know, it'll be a, a data mess, not a data mesh. If you take that approach, it's it's really not going to work. You've got to have strategy and thought in in planning this. You've got to have a, a sensible use case up front, and um, probably a sensible use case that's maybe for your first data products, not super business critical. So if you get, you've got space to get it wrong, you've got space to learn. I think those are probably the main, the main kind of responses that I would have to to that kind of that kind of thinking. Um, and then, I mean, uh, wider than clients, you kind of see the old school on LinkedIn and so on that saying, well, you know, data warehouses from the seventies were always meant to work like this, or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, uh, and I think there's, you know, there are there are there are people that are very stuck in their ways, and they've 
they've known how to do this for a long time. I mean, you know, Inman and Kimball have been around since what, 89 and 92. And there's not really been a whole lot else in the space. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe like, maybe like data vault, but that's just an extension really. Um, you know, you've kind of got like Maxime Boschman putting out, um, the, uh, kind of snapshot dimensions, but that's, again, it's just, it's still an extension of, of Kimball. So, really trying to think uh, about how this is looking at data in a totally different way, not a totally different way, but a very different way from the original approach of let's just centralize it completely and have that knowledge all in one place. There's a lot of people stuck in that space because they built careers on it and, and it's what they know. And, you know, it's kind of, um, it, it, it kind of works to a certain extent. Well, it, uh, to me, I, I think, something really clicked into place about this is that um, doing enterprise data warehousing really well in that kind of centralized approach is kind of magic. And so Mm. these people have built this incredible talent to do this very, very difficult thing. So even if even the, the industry analysts and, you know, some of them are uh, more nice than others, but uh, (laughs) that are really trying to push back and say, no, 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 we need to keep the enterprise data warehousing the way it is. I think a lot of it is is somewhat of an appreciation for these artisans, right? These enterprise yeah, yeah. data warehouse yeah, yeah. artisans. And they don't want that to be thrown, you know, oh, we, we can't throw this out because these people have developed such amazing skills. But one, it's just, it's not, there anymore, right? There's the, the, the tools have moved to a place where you don't need to be doing this. You don't need to be constrained in the same way. And, um, and that they're just, I think there's a lot of frustration around kind of people moving past and that people taking people who haven't been living the day-to-day pain of just being in the data world of of all these constraints and all these challenges that, you know, oh, you're, you're applying these newfangled approaches. And it's like, well, it should have been being applied 10 years ago. And I I think that's also a challenge of data mesh is that a lot of it's just Jamak taking, you know, 10 different approaches from the software engineering world and bringing them all in at once and people are like, this is this is such a huge change. And it's like, well, yes, but that's because if we try to do piecemeal, this causes this problem. And this Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Of the four different pillars. And she goes, this causes this, and this causes this. She's got like a bunch of different arrows. And um I think that that we're just people are frustrated from that standpoint. And and that it's so big, it's very, very hard to encapsulate it into a few words. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I, I, agree, I completely agree with that. And it's, it's why, you know, it's why I think the discussion is so ripe in this space, because there's a lot to talk about. And there's a lot to think about, you know, um, it's not a small problem. It's a long, it's a long journey. It's a long project. And, um, and there's going to be bumps on the way as, as you kind of go through it. So, so yeah, I, t- I, I completely see that. Okay. Well, um, you know, you've been very, very gracious with uh, your time today. Really want to thank you. Where can people find you to connect with you and, and continue the conversation? Yeah. So uh, probably the best place is on LinkedIn. Um, my LinkedIn, I'm going to look it up now. I think I'll, it I'll is. Dro- I'll drop the Dill. link in the, in the, yeah. in the show notes. So. Okay, cool. Yeah. So LinkedIn's probably the best place. I think it still talks about me being a DBA in there, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like Matthew Darwin DBA or something. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn's the best place. Uh, drop me a message, drop me a post, um, and so on. Um, I'm usually friendly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And yeah, I should hopefully have some exciting news in the new year as well. So, uh, uh, okay. we'll uh, keep posted for that one. Yeah. I, I would say, uh, between the two of us, if you're, if you're relatively, uh, friendly or if you're often friendly, then I'm extremely often not friendly. So I think, <laughs> I think Matt's the, uh, probably the one of the if not the nicest and most level-headed people kind of in the overall community and so i I think uh great insights today and, and look forward to chatting with you again in the future cool thanks for having me scott
Thanks again to Matthew Darwin of Slalom Consulting for an awesome interview. If you want to get in touch with Matt, you can find his LinkedIn in the show notes. I'll also drop in the links to the article that we had discussed, as well as the recent poll he had posted on LinkedIn. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about, like, going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.